All right, I guess we should start. Um, okay, so here's here's a question about um, the midterm and final uh, quiz, whatever they are. Um, so a couple of people um, said, how about doing them as take-home tests? And um, there are pluses and minuses to that, but I will leave it up to you. Um, the pluses, obviously, is, okay, now I got the question. Now I can madly scramble to do the um, proper rereading, um, as we always say. Um, and um, that way... I can also give long, well-considered, um, deeply thought through and um, serious responses to these questions. Um, and uh, the opportunity to reread quickly when I know exactly what it is that I need to reread is always a good opportunity. Um, and the bad part of it is that you would be spending a whole lot more time working on that test than if it were 20 minutes in class. Um, and obviously, if it's 20 minutes in class, um, what that means is that um, the depth that you would have to go into um, is not such that um, you would have to really, really, really think hard about everything we've read in order to have something sufficiently intelligent to do well on the in-class version um, to do. So, you know, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, obviously, uh, the reason we give you um, tests is to encourage you to do the reading because it's otherwise really easy to do only the reading that you're going to do for um, the papers that you write. Um, and that's why courses have tests. And um, it's because we think um, that it would be enrich your lives to do the reading. Um, and um, so, but of course, we also want you to read deeply and think deeply. So um, there is, from my point of view, it's like do the reading, um, take a relatively easy um, midterm and final, which doesn't require you to, um, to have done serious rereading. And here by serious, I mean um, actual rereading. Um, the idea is to get you to start thinking about issues that you will then have um, lots and lots of time in the rest of your lives to follow through on if they're interesting ones to you, but at least you'll know they're there and you'll have had some familiarity with them. Um, so, so basically in-class tests tend to encourage people um, to read quickly and without sufficient understanding but at least to know what the landscape looks like, um, to get the um, overview of the landscape. And um, papers will um, hopefully get you to read um, at least a couple of things more deeply. Obviously, take-home exams will also get, you to, also get you to read a couple of things more deeply. Um, so that said, that, well, no, I want to say one other thing, which is that um, there are what are called strategies of commitment, and what a strategy of commitment is, is when you know that you really, really want to learn something or do something or achieve something, but you also know that you, like everyone else, when push comes to shove, if you can find a way of doing it the easy way, because your life is so difficult and busy and um, it's just like, God, I really, 
I would really like to do this right, but I just don't have time to do it right now, and someday I will. Um, what a strategy of commitment does is it, um, is it commits you in advance to doing it right because you don't get an excuse out of it. So basically what people will do is um, they, they will um, put themselves in positions where they'll actually really get into trouble if they try to take the easy way out. Um, and it's a good thing to learn to do in your life. Um, if there's something you really want to do, put yourself in a position where um, it'll really be trouble for you um, if you don't um, follow through in it and just voluntarily embrace um, the trouble it will be if you don't um, if you don't follow through on it. You know you know the sort of thing I mean, right? Um, so, um, well, I'll tell you the sort of thing I mean. Um, the um, if you ever go skydiving, has anyone gone skydiving? Um, okay, so you guys may have had this experience. Um, it was for me both a, a terrible but a, but a really really helpful fact that as we got into the plane, our instructor said the plane can take off with this many people in it, but it can't land with this many people in it. Um, which is true. Planes can. That that's why they dump fuel. Um, if planes have to make emergency landings, they dump fuel because planes can take off um, with a lot more. Um, uh, freight than they can land with. So he basically said, you know, so, so we can't land with everyone um, now in the plane taking off. Um, and so you have no choice but to jump um, because if you don't jump, you will die and so will everyone else. Um, so um, that was like, um, was that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, it became a kind of strategy of commitment which is because um, there was no choice, then um, there was no way that you could chicken out when push came to shove. Did you got, was that your experience? Did they tell you that? Yeah, yeah and you too? No? Y you had a choice? I mean, they just didn't really talk about it, but the fact that you have a person strapped on your back kind of is like, you can't. Oh, you did a tandem skydive. Yeah. No, that, was yours tandem? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mine was solo. Um, but, and then we got so low. Well, with a static line, but so low, yeah. That, that if, you, if you just sort of like go crazy and scream, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, there's a rope, there's a, there's a line from the plane to the ripcord, and the chute will open no matter how stupid you are. <laughs> um, so, um, so that's a good thing. Um, the most famous strategy commitment in literature is um, Odysseus, who um, in the Song of the Sirens, what he does is he has himself tied to the mast, and he has um, all the other sailors who he's sailing with um, block their ears so they can't hear the siren song, but he tells them beforehand, do not obey any orders that I give you um, to uh, steer towards the sirens. Um, I want to hear their song, but I know that their song um, gets all humans to steer towards them. Do not obey any order that I give you to steer towards them. Um, and he has himself tied to the mast. And um, so the point is he's committed not to going to hear the sirens, even if he decides that that's what he wants to do. Um, he has no choice. He can't do it. Um, in games of chicken, strategies, commitment, the famous one in movies at any rate, is you throw the steering wheel out of the car 
and then the other person knows that you can't do what you might want to do, which is veer out of the way and not get killed. Um, so they're, they're really useful in life, um, dangerous but useful. So the question is strategy of commitment. Um, do you guys want to commit yourselves to a midterm where you have to do more reading, um, which would be to say an in-class one? Um, or do you just want to um, uh, decide, no, this is your chance to commit yourself to something that you may regret later and that you now know you may regret later, but that you've decided um, that it will be good for you, even if you regret it later, to have to go through it. Yeah? Before the in-class midterm, would it be possible you can tell us more or less what we have to study more in depth? Um, well, we've been getting three or four readings for every class, and it's sometimes hard to... I don't think you have to worry so much about who said what um, as to what sorts of issues these things are making you think about. So it's more really that um, the kind of questions we're going to ask, um, because we've had a long discussion about this, uh, the kinds of questions we're going to ask are questions about issues where the reading will um, help you focus some of those some of the questions about issues. So it's not um, was it um, was it Badieu or was it um, Bazin who said this about the the um, image movement? That's not what we're going to ask. Um, what we may ask is um, what does um, what's a what's an example. Of um, of time object well I'm not of of time objectified um, and um, what are some of the consequences of that so if you do the reading you'll have stuff to talk about that's the point um, and rather than um, have you managed to um, figure out what each of these um, famous people um, uh, where they where they are in the pantheon of the history of philosophy and the history of cinema. It's not that kind of test. Uh, yeah. Look, the skydivers are the question askers. Isn't that interesting? As far as structure is concerned, for like, the in-class versus the take-home, how many like, questions do they like, The, the take-home is inevitably going to take you at least two or three hours. Um, and the in-class is going to take you 20 minutes. Okay. And just the date? Um, it's on the syllabus. March 4th? March 4th. So March 4th and, and decide what you will do. All right, so should we take a vote? <laughs> should we vote on whether to take a vote? How many people want to take a vote? And how many people want me to decide? Okay, how many people want to take a vote? Uh, how many people want me to decide? <laughs> okay, how many people want to raise a question? Okay, yes, go ahead. I think it has to be consistent, yeah. Um, how many people think I think it has to be consistent? <laughs> yeah, no, I do think it has to be consistent. Um, or we could do, I mean, the other possibility is one or the other. Um, are, is there any interest in that? If we do it one or the other, the take-home would be the midterm and the final would be an in-class. Would people, is there any movement for that? Any? I know, but the problem is when you vote among three things, it's, um, it gets really tricky to, to figure out what people's real preferences are. Um, is there, a, okay. You're saying one of each. Yeah, with the in class, but the in class would be second, would be the final. 
Okay, are, are people interested in that? Why, why, would the, just, <coughs> why would you want the in class to be, because I, I thought it would make sense to do the other way around? Um, because then you would just sort of like do all the reading until March 4th, and then you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> whereas this way you'll just do all the reading the last week of class. Um, and you'll get a sense of the landscape. So is there, is there a desire to have an um, in-class final and a take-home midterm? Not much. Okay, so let's, let's vote between um, two homogenous possibilities, um, two in-classes or two take-homes. How many want in-classes? Um, can you count? One, two, three. Keep in mind that you have an entire break to do all of these readings. <laughs> okay, so how many people want in class? And how many people want take homes? It looks like slightly more take homes. Do you agree? No? All right, let's count. Uh, no, I abstain. What? Meaning nothing? <laughs> All right. Okay, raise your hands high. Raise, raise one hand high if you would like to do an in-class set of tests. High, high. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, Raise your hands high if you would like to do uh, um, take home, uh, two take-homes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, six, seventeen. <laughs> All right. Recount is this Bush versus Gore. No, we don't need to debate. We need to have class. Okay, any hanging chads? Any abstainers who now can't believe they abstained and want to weigh in? Um, take your time. Think about it. Three, two, one, zero. Too late. Okay. <laughs> no, we're not voting again. We're done. Yeah, they, they're allowed to abstain. Yeah, they, their votes get split. Doesn't make a difference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, next, um, I'm just curious how many people had seen Dark City before? Um, okay, and how many people have seen The Matrix? So for those of you who, obvi obviously there's a lot of overlap, but for those of you who hadn't um, seen Dark City before, um, I hope it is, uh, it struck you as an interesting precursor to The Matrix. It's a year before The Matrix. Um, and it's clear that some of the ideas in Dark City are, um, you will see, um, uh, coming up in The Matrix as well. Yeah. Given how long development and production takes, wouldn't they have been sort of thought of at the same time and produced Yeah, I don't actually know the details, um, of that, but, um, I'm pretty sure that they were still doing, um, they were doing some work on The Matrix when Dark City was released. So um, the question, it is always an interesting question about um, 
uh, the extent to which movies just belong to the same kind of um, zeitgeist, that is, people interested in certain issues at certain times, mm -hmm. and whether um, The Matrix, Dark City, another movie from the same era, which is very similar, is The 13th Floor, um, whether it's that people are thinking about um, false reality, false consciousness, virtual reality, false memories, um, and so on at the same time, or whether um, the fact that they're thinking about it at the same time also means that they're, um, the way they're thinking about it is interacting with each other, and then you give some credit to whatever comes earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but How old were you? <laughs> within a lot, uh, short enough time span that there was like a full metal jacket effect, kind of, that like people don't want to go see two similar Vietnam films in the same year. Like, is it, did I, they pull from the same draw, or were they like released far enough apart that like people went, people who would like that kind of film went and saw both and like compared them? Dark City was a box office failure. Just, yeah, it didn't do well. No. But, like, I don't know if that's because. It no, was it was before The Matrix. So it. It was a box office failure, but The Matrix obviously wasn't. Um, and, uh, you know, part of that is Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne, but part of it is just The Matrix was special CGI that no one had ever seen before. And um, I think Time Magazine had a cover story on Bullet Time. And, sorry? And the director being, like, a unit Yeah. Famous. Yeah. Compared to the more famous. Yeah. So, you know, as a movie, obviously, The Matrix, I'm not sure about the acting. Um, but as a movie, The Matrix is um, uh, uh, just production values and, and um, um, just carefulness and novelty and, and all the things that go into The Matrix. It's um, a much more accomplished movie than Dark City is. But as um, a kind of meditation, um, you know, the cheapest movie we've seen so far um, in, in this course is La Jetée. And um, as, as um, a document of thinking about the same sorts of issues that will then come up um, in The Matrix and in Dark City and in 13th Floor and in Inception also, which how many people have seen? Um, that was an italicized movie for this week. Um, those, those sorts of issues, they're perennially interesting. Um, I think in Dark City, I, I'd like us, I, I want, we will get to Plato. I know, I know your heart beats faster as soon as I say that. Um, but we really, really, really do have to um, just see how the allegory of the cave is really behind everything um, that anyone has to say philosophically about what's going on in movies. Um, and behind all the reading that we've done in one way or another also. Um, but um, the... Um, I think that um, it's perennially interesting, these sorts of movies are perennially interesting because the question of, an, of being completely um, absorbed by watching, um, interacting with, um, um, figuring your way around a world which turns out to be unreal, a world which turns out to be the product of some sort of um, technological intervention. Another movie at the same time that some of you may know is The Truman Show, um, which is um, really different in a lot of ways, um, 
for one thing, the Truman Show is is carp. If, if you've seen the Truman Show, the world of the Truman Show is carpentry. It's not um, it's not magic technology or it's not telepathy. It's it's carpentry. But in some ways, it's similar because the Truman Show is a show. It's on TV. That is what your the world that you're seeing in the Truman Show um, is a world which is actually presented for cameras and for television screens. Um, so technology, um, new technology, digital informational technology um, comes into the Truman Show as well. Um, so that idea of a world which is illusory because of technology which makes it possible to produce that illusion for its denizens, um, that's perennially interesting to movie makers. Um, and it's um, Dark City is kind of sort of the steampunk version of that, um, although the Matrix has its steampunk um, <laughs> aspects as well. Um, but it's but um, broadly speaking, um, it's the same sort of thing. Why are movies so interested in that? Why is that question? And I think Dark City is actually in a way. Um, the a, a very pure way of asking um, a very pure form, not pure in the um, Bagia sense of purity is not what you get from cinema, but just a very direct way of raising this question of why movies in particular are interested in just that issue of um, false realities. Yeah. Right. Or that it exists. We don't know that the city about the strangers or anything like that. We also we also have amnesia. Yeah. Um, so we also have amnesia. We don't know um, what exists and what doesn't exist. By the way, what's the MacGuffin <coughs> in Dark City? Always a useful question. Shell Beach. Yeah. Okay. Good. Shell Beach. Yeah. Also because the fact that movies in itself are a false reality. Uh huh. To raise awareness of the fact that movie you're watching a false reality about a false reality. Right. Okay, good. Um, so, you, so what you're doing is you're, um, the movie itself is a false reality, and um, then within the movie, the question of whether people believe they're in a real world, people who believe they're in a real world actually turn out to be in a movie world, you could, you could say, um, if you were, if you were um, canceling out the differences. Yeah. Uh, do you, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> unlike what, what goes on, on on stage, although there are all sorts of codes or were all sorts of codes about what you could show on stage as well, 
But we could probably say that unlike what goes on on stage, um, what you see in a film um, is seamlessly part of a single world. And um, those things which belong to a single world seamlessly, um, that gives you, that, that's maybe one, one huge parameter of what reality is. Um, that might even be a Kantian thing to say. That is that what Kant says. Did you find the Kant, by the way, hard or not hard? Or both? <coughs> what? Both. Okay, I, th I think that's fair. Um, one thing Kant says about space is um, that there's only one space. That is that, um, that there's um, everything in space is in some spatial relation to everything else in space. Um, and that's a way of talking about seamlessness. Um, that's a way of saying that, you know, that's not true um, on stage. There's a way that on stage that whatever spatial world um, we're seeing on stage, you know, the house of the master builder or of Hedda Gobbler or whatever, um, we are um, also looking at the presence of real human beings who are present in our world even though they are acting out the characters in a different world. Um, that's not true about movie actors, um, which is to say that we don't see movie actors, we see their images, and they belong seamlessly to the spatial world um, in which they are. Um, it maybe doesn't make sense in a movie to ask whether a prop is a real gun or a fake gun. Um, it may make sense in the story of the movie, um, you know, she picks up a gun, but it turns out, no, it was, it was only a toy gun. Um, but if someone is holding a gun in a movie, um, in that world, it's a gun. Um, we're not thinking, oh, but I know that it was actually a prop. Um, in that world, it's a gun. And in, the wor in that world, the person who is holding it is Sam Spade and not Humphrey Bogart. Um, whereas on stage, and Bogart, you know, started as a stage actor, or now you know, started as a stage actor, um, it, um, that's not a real gun, um, but um, it is in the world of the story, but the person holding it is the actor in our world. That's why that person um, is, can't get rid of their own presence. That's the only illusion um, that you can't get rid of, that you can't have on stage. Um, Bazin is essentially endorsing. The only illusion you can't have on stage is the illusion that the actor is not an actor, but the actual person in the story. Um, they're more like a storyteller than a story embodier. Um, someone's hand was up there. <coughs> um, I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of, we've kind of gone past the, the point. But um, I was just saying that another reason was that film is you know, really well suited to showing false realities because it's such a visual medium. Uh -huh. Like, it's just an easy thing for filmmakers to do is have a reality that transfers into another one very seamlessly. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I think that's 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 good. Yeah, yeah. And then there's like a singularness to it because like with the play, like you might see many different people's attempts at like capturing it. So like a story, you hear many different types of a story, but like the Matrix will just keep being the Matrix, not in any different like every single moment, like other than Mark, like you know, like slightly like director's cut or something. 
other than that, it is like singular in that like this is like like kind of going towards the actors thing, but in general, like it's just it, you know, as opposed to like a representation or a Right, and and that's sort of like, yeah, the reality of the image. The image becomes itself a reality. Um, yeah, and I think that's a good way of understanding that fact um, that Bajia is quoting to Lozon, um, is that, yeah, there is the Matrix, and there could be a remake, um, possibly, but no one is going to say, oh, that's the true Matrix. Um, people will say, you know, what a great remake, um, or what a crappy remake, more likely. Um, but not, oh, that's the Matrix. Now, no, you know, now we're getting a better um, view of it. The Matrix is something real now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm curious about, like, what effect documentaries then have on, like, an audience. For example, if it's about war and, and someone's on the front lines and there's a gun go off, if you know it's a real gun to actually shoot it, yeah. what, kind of what, what effect then does that have on the audience? Well, that's a, I think that's a really interesting question, and, um, we're probably, documentaries are um, fascinating as um, uh, in the way they work, um, which is to say the extent to which um, they do the same kind of thing that a fictional film does, which is that they present something which is not real, which is an image. Um, or which has the reality of an image and not the reality of something actually occurring to people in a theater. Um, so that if you think about it, there's, it's not utterly impossible, but almost impossible to imagine documentary theater. Um, the closest you can get is like attending a trial or something. Um, but then you only see it once. Um, it's um, one of the facts about theater and film is that is that they're repeatable, um, and that's really crucial for film. Is that you can re you can see it more than once. That a film is something is an experience that can be repeated. Um, some of you probably do. People know who William Gibson is, um, author of Neuromancer, not author of um, The Miracle Worker. Um, so well, William, William Gibson is is uh, the person who invented the um, term um, cyberspace and he did it in a story called Johnny Mnemonic which then became a movie starring Keanu Reeves inevitably um, and um, the whole idea basically the matrix is, is swiped from Neuromancer um, not the plot but the world of the matrix is really swiped from Neuromancer which was the first cyberpunk or arguably the first cyberpunk novel um, came out in 1984 interestingly enough um, so 1984 turned out to be the year of cyberpunk and George Orwell didn't know it um, and um, Gibson is um, um the virtual world that he's describing there um, is a virtual world um, where people are entering into an ontology of numbers, um, as Baji calls it, um, and um, moving around in that sort of reality. Um, now, the thing about um, theater is, well, I'm sorry, the um, Gibson published, had a pretty interesting stunt publication um, 
I forget the name of the book now. Does anyone know about this? It was a book that you could only read once. Um, so the at any rate, the idea was someone someone hacked it and figured it out. But the idea was that you could buy this book. You were actually buying a piece of hardware. Um, if you bought the book, you actually had to buy the hardware that it was on. And um, what would happen is that um, you would start reading it, and the text would scroll down at you know a, at at a short enough uh, at a slow enough pace that there was no difficulty reading it. Um, but once you read a page, it was gone forever. Um, and so it was um, a book that you could read, um, but you could not reread. And so there was all sorts of really interesting um, um, questions about um, uh, whether people. It, it, would, it was like it was like wine in a way. Would you drink your bottle of 1961 um, Lafitte? Um, or would you save it forever? Because once you drink it, you no longer have that bottle of wine. So this book was a book that once you read it, you could no longer ever read it again. Um, and it was a book about memory. It was a book about, um, an autobiographical book about his own um, past, um, his own memory. Are you looking it up? Can you, can you find it? Um, well, can you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm embarrassed to forget the title. But the basic idea of what Gibson is doing is going against our basic view of art as a repeatable experience. And even theater, which is the most ephemeral of um, the repeatable experiences of art, they're scripted. Um, you know, improv, not so much, but um, the idea is, yeah, you can see it again. It's repeatable. Um, documentaries... Um, in theater would not be. Trials aren't. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, do you think it's safe to rely on the language of something like uh, replicability to talk about our experience especially when we're talking about something like assuming that we don't have multiple spaces or multiple theories of time that like, it, it might be something more like an iterative process. Yeah. Because like, I can certainly say the second time I saw The Matrix I didn't have the same reaction. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. And like the way you relate to the ideas as they exist either on the page or on the screen yeah. changes when you see them. <coughs> yep. I think that sometimes that's different when it comes to reading and, mm -hmm. or, or any other kind of thing than with film. There's like a very specific, that like you're not in control. There is someone else in control of every single thing you are seeing. So where it's possible in uh, like book to misread a sentence, it's mm -hmm. not as possible to like missee a scene. Like um, it's, it's possible to like have different readings or interpretations, but it's it's much more challenging to just like literally like read induction as deduction and then be totally wrong with what you what your reading was about like the theme of a narrative. Wait, so which is? Are you saying one is repeatable and the other should be rather described as iterable? Oh, no, not necessarily. Those are two okay. separate thoughts. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think it's true that um, as as Kierkegaard once wondered. Um, it's quite possible that repetition is never possible. That was badly put. But it may very well be that repetition is not possible. Kierkegaard um, begins his great book, Repetition, with um, the, um, he begins, I think the first lines are, um, I wanted to know whether repetition was possible or not. And then I said to myself, Fool, thou hast been to Ber thou hast been to Berlin. Thou canst go to Berlin where thou hast been before, and then truly find out whether repetition is possible or not. So the question whether repetition is possible is a um, it's actually a deep and a hard one. 
Um, but the but um, the experience of a play or a movie, um, as the experience of reading, is the stuff I can check this. That is, any moment that's happening is a moment you can check on. Um, and that also means that there's a sense in which you can be somewhat less alert, um, or you can allow your thoughts to go certain ways because you can check them later. Um, the coming of DVDs um, affected a whole lot our, um, our, our culture's experience of movies um, because the um, <coughs> fact that you could check things a lot more easily um, and that you could buy the movie, could look forward to buying the movie if you wanted to, and that that was your choice, um, that, um, that affects your viewing. Um, but, so do I think repetition is possible? Probably not, but do I think um, that uh, iterability, um, do I think iterability is possible? Yes. And um, you could argue that even iterability is impossible, but I think it is, and I think that um, that's what documentary movies can give you, um, but that some documentary version of theater cannot. Um, yeah. Well, well, I was just going to say, just to respond to like how you can read uh, um, like a, a scene from a movie in different ways. I think a lot is affected by just your knowledge of like the plot of what is going to happen. So like, if you know what's going to happen then you're not looking, like, you might start looking for different things. Like, this is, like, a lot has to do with, like, like eye tracking. If, if you watch, like, like, looking at a picture, it's not all, like, one spot that you look every time, and that's what the picture is. Like, a lot has to do with, since each image is constantly changing and you're looking around, you're going to pick up on things, and you're going to see subtle things that you're not going to have noticed when maybe you were more, like, it's kind of like if you see a magic trick a couple times. Um... The first time you're probably going to fall right for like the magic trick, and you're going to look exactly what they expect. But if you keep watching it, you might start trying to because you know where you're going to look. So you might start looking somewhere else. You know, like you might look like, like you know you're being directed over here. So, so so now look the other place. Yeah. Know? So you won't see you won't be seeing the same thing. So you won't be seeing the same thing. You'll see like subtle differences. And, but uh, yeah, I can understand that. Like the, the yeah, variation. That's not the point. The, no, I don't. I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. saying. I don't disagree with what you're saying. Yeah, there's like a lot of range in the difference between how the iterations of movie watching versus reading. Um, I guess no. What I was kind of trying. I don't know. It's kind of it's just been hard. Still, I do think there might be a distinction, like the kind of iteration we see in movies specifically, though. Mm -hmm. Like truly, what we were saying about like the unitary capturing of an entire world. Yeah. And the ability to like caveat the existence of a second or third or fourth or whatever million space. Mm -hmm. So like when you, like yes, when you reread a novel, you are gonna get different things in the same way you get different things from rewatching a movie and noticing things in X part of the shot that you didn't see before or something about how the camera is tilted in a certain way. But in terms of it being like the totality of experience, that's something that like if you reread a novel 30 years later, you're, it's going to be entirely dependent on like where you are when you're reading it, those kinds of things. Whereas with the, with cinema, like yeah. Yeah, I guess still with DVD, like you could be on your laptop as opposed to like in theater. But there's like a, a totality of world and experience that you're being involved. I th yeah, I think that's right, and I think again, this is one of those lumping, splitting things because um, I think that it, in fact, it's probably the case that if you watch a movie 30 years after you first watched it, um, you'll have some of the novelistic experience of you're a different person and this is actually a different world from what it was 30 years ago. 
Um, but I do think that when you read a novel, um, there's it's it's internal to the experience of reading a novel that you have a sense uh, that you will be reading it differently 30 years from now if you reread it. And it's not internal to the experience of watching a movie. It's internal to the experience of watching a movie to think that, um, that it's, um, it's a perfectly iterative experience, even <coughs> though, in fact, empirically, it probably isn't. It's internal to the experience to treat it as though it is one. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, thank you. You have the whole book. It's 300 lines. Uh, yeah, I know. It's not long. And, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a poem that was designed to encrypt itself after being read, and people cracked crack, crack the encryption. Yeah, no, I remember. Um, I sent out the, the cracked version on LiveJournal, if you remember LiveJournal at the time. <laughs> Okay, thanks. So yeah, Agrippa, Book of the Dead. Is it on Wikipedia? Is that where you found it? Or? Uh, okay, yeah. Um, back to Dark City. Um, so among the things in Dark City that are um, the equivalent of the creation of a world into which um, its denizens enter, um, one fact about it is that it's always night and for those of you seeing it the first time um, that's something that you you're kind of getting and kind of not getting at first um, because movies can elide time and um, skipping daytime um, doing things only at night um, that's things movies do especially noirs um, that kind of film noir detective movie um, where people are on the night shift and where we see them is at night. Um, there's a great, um, really interesting um, movie called Exterior Night, which is um, a CGI set of um, characters placed into um, great noir scenes and um, they have a relationship with each other in these scenes from the history of noir movies and um, exterior night is how you would set um, it's what you would put at the, at the beginning of a scene if you're right on a, on a movie script on a screenplay um, every scene begins with whether it's interior or exterior and whether it's day or night um, so exterior night is the title of this movie and it's a lot of noir scenes and these people interacting um, with each other, same two characters or three characters interacting with each other and um, the point is it's always night because it's a film noir um, if you've seen Sweet Smell of Success, um, everything in Sweet Smell of Success takes place at night and we're used to, the fact, to that fact that people are what they do during the daytime um, the movie's not interested in it's interested in um, it elides those things so that we get um, night all the time um, in Dark City, which is a great noir title, it turns out that it's night all the time because it is night all the time, because there's never any daytime. Um, if you were cued into watching clocks from the clock, um, you will. there's a great moment um, in Dark City where someone says, what is it, is it 10.30 a.m. or p.m.? Or is it 12.30 a.m. or p.m.? Um, and it's obviously 12.30 at night, um, but that's when they start 
realizing that all these scenes are somehow being set at night. Um, that's a thing movies do, but that's a thing that the um, aliens in Dark City are doing as well. Um, they are um, making it always exterior or interior, but the time is always night. Um, so that's a sort of um, nifty thing they do. The other thing they do, and I think this is implicit in what some people have been saying, is um, they give you backstory. And um, the way how are characters given backstory in Dark City? Through memory, yeah, through injection. They get injections of backstory. Um, and uh, those injections just give them the past that we, at first, as moviegoers, are putting that past together the way we put past together in any movie. That is, um, if a husband and wife are talking to each other, um, we are quickly informed that they are husband and wife by the way they talk to each other um, and by the words that they use um, to each other. And But it turns out, in some sense, that they haven't been husband and wife any longer to each other than they are to us. Um, that what we assume is we're getting the tip of an iceberg, but we're actually getting the whole iceberg in Dark City. What we have is all they have. What they have is um, everything that we have, but nothing more. They don't have any other past besides the past that we have. There's nothing in Dark City um, that we're only getting a sample of. I mean, that's obviously an exaggeration. But the thing about movies is generally everything is a sample of this other spatial world which extends beyond the edges of the screen. That's the point. Um, that's the difference between uh, movies and theater. Um, everything is, this, movies only sample a part of the world. We only see part of that world. Um, that's why movie makers only have to um, construct sets that show a part of the world because we then um, impute the entire world to that space. Um, but in Dark City, we only get a part of, we don't only get a part of the world, we get the whole world that's there. Um, we think we're seeing the sea um, at, at one point where finally he um, opens the door and there is the vision of the ocean, but it turns out just to be a poster um, on a brick wall. And um, that's how you would show an ocean in a studio, but there's a sense in which Dark City is a studio. Um, it's not that... Um, that um, a studio is representing something bigger. The studio is all there is, and that's what we discover is all there is. Fellini does similar things sometimes, um, and it's a really interesting and neat thing to do. But I think um, it this then raises really interesting questions. Yeah? I was going to say, can you say where you think Fellini does selection? Well, um, he does it in... Um, movies like Eight and a Half and movies about movie making, but I also think that he does it implicitly in a movie like Casanova, where the Ven where Venice itself, the, the Venice that Casanova... Have you seen Casanova? So the Venice that um, Kiefer's dad, Donald, who plays Casanova, um, uh, Donald Sutherland plays him, um, that Venice is um, 
insistently a studio um, representation and looks nothing like Venice and is not meant to look um, anything like Venice. And um, it's um, artificial the way Venice itself is artificial. That is to say, Venice is so artificial a city that what Fellini is doing is intensifying the artifice by saying, here's an artificial version of Venice. I think movie musicals do it also. I think you'll find it in a lot of Astaire and Rod well, not only Astaire and Rogers, but Busby Berkeley movies as well. Um, but Fellini, who comes out, of, uh, comes out of that tradition or is fascinated by that tradition, um, is doing something similar. Or think of subway stations in Roma, you know, when, they, when they're digging the subway. And um, that's actually a good example. There's a scene in Roma where they're digging the subway in Rome and they come upon um, an old Roman villa with frescoes and they break into it and uh, the fresh air causes the frescoes to fade and disappear before our eyes. Um, so that's a little bit like Agrippa. Um, but that's, there's this, um, that's all there is, is this room that he built, frescoes he painted, um, that were then going to disappear, and that was the point, was their disappearance. So I think that's something he's always playing with. Obviously not in La Strada, but in um, the, the um, in-your-face artificial um, later movies. Um, I think the other thing then to um, ask about when thinking about Dark City is the romance um, between um, the Murdochs. Um, it turns out they don't have a past together or that their past together is, um, has been extremely short, um, as short as the movie. That is almost a real time we have almost a real-time sense of what their past together has been. Um, I actually didn't check how much of Dark City does occur in real time, but I wouldn't be surprised if it... Um, it obviously doesn't quite, but I wouldn't be surprised if it comes close to being a real-time movie, um, like that other Kiefer Sutherland vehicle, 24. Um, and... Um, but we're certainly meant to think of it, a lot of it as occurring in real time. And um, the, so their past together isn't a real one. Their past together, their commitment to each other um, isn't something that um, we're seeing only, we're, we, that, that, that we're seeing in, at present, but that we know is supported by a whole lot of stuff that we haven't seen. Um, if you think about it, um, that idea of, um, a relationship supported by stuff that um, has occurred before we came upon that relationship. Um, that's a huge part of all human experience, um, a gigantic part of all human experience, um, probably most prominently in the relationship between our parents, um, which perforce began um, before we existed. And um, that way of understanding the relationship of people to each other as having a backstory, um, having a forestory, a before the um, time we came upon the scene. Um, we're really tuned to that. That's a huge category of social perception for us, of psychology, a huge category of the psychology of social perception for us. 
and um, it turns and it, and movies trade on it. Um, that is that when there are um, people who are set up as husband and wife, set up as best friends, set up as partners and or buddies in buddy movies, um, that backstory matters. That uh, memory matters. You know, just think of the beginning of The Wire and you know Bunk and McNulty. They've been partners for a, for a while. Um, they know each other. They get each other. Um, and they haven't. The script just started, but that's the way it. That's the way we read it because that's how we're tuned to understand social relations. Um, not true about Dark City. What does it do to the love story between the Murdochs when it when we find out um, that she didn't cheat on him, and she didn't cheat on him because she didn't know him? It's not only because she didn't cheat. It was because there was no relationship to cheat on either. Um, that the only thing that they have together is a memory of stuff that didn't happen. Does that undercut the love story between them? Yeah. Sorry. No, why not? Sorry? Um, okay, but are false memories, what do we think about love based on false memories? <laughs> are we for it? Well, in a funny kind of way, all love is based on false memory, but that's not actually what I mean. Um, I mean, it's meant to be a challenge in the movie. It's not, it may be that, um, yeah. Sorry, do you mean like false in fact or like false in, so like a case where like it might be false in fact is like someone was raised their whole life thinking someone was their birth father and then mm -hmm. it turns out they weren't. Like, yeah. That love was false. They loved that person as they were their father. If they happened to not be, it's still fine. Like what... Well, so it seems like a categorical distinction. But that, right? well, there it's a true memory of a false um, of a of a false belief. Yeah. Right. Um, Does, like, the memory have to be true, or just the belief? Well, th if you have a memory implant, um, this comes up in um, the novel and to some and various versions of the movie um, Solaris. But if you have a memory implant, so that you think you're um, have lived with someone and have committed yourself to them. And um, it just isn't true um, that, that, that it hasn't happened. I mean, what happens in Dark City is she turns into someone else. Um, so she loses the memory. And um, remember, uh, people know, by the way, why Kiefer Sutherland has the name he has. Do people remember what it is? Kiefer Sutherland is the doctor. Um, and his, do you remember Matt? Dr. Schraber. Dr. Schraber. Schraber. Yeah. Do people know who Dr. Schraber is? Yeah. Who? No, no, no. In reality, the names in the names, at least some of the names, like uh, um, William Hurt's character. What's his last name? Anyone remember? I think you're supposed to laugh. Bumstead, as in who? No, Dagwood? Yeah. No, you don't know who Dagwood Bumstead is? Yeah, okay. Right, yeah. 
Um, Blondie. Um, her husband is named Dagwood. He's famous for his sandwiches. Um, that's what that's his shtick is to get up at midnight and have um, subs with forty eight layers, and then Blondie comes in. And I guess you guys had to have grown up in the forties like me. Um, so um, famous comic book character. It's almost I don't know Lucy Van Pelt. If you had a character named Van Pelt, yes, Lucy Van Pelt. No, no one knows. Really? Charlie Brown? Okay, you didn't know Lucy's last name was Van Pelt? No. Okay, now you know. She's the one who always um, whips the football out of the way. Lucy Van Pelt and her brother Linus Van Pelt. Okay. Um, Linus, yay. Um, All right, Dr. Schraber was um, a famous um, judge in Austria at the end of the 19th century who um, wrote a book called Memoirs of My Mental Illness in which he describes his absolutely delusional beliefs about who he he is and what he is. And he basically says, um, I actually think all this is true, um, but just in case it isn't um, and someone is interested um, because they're interested, here are the things that I think are true. Um, and uh, he believed that he was the wife of God um, and that the sun shone out of his anus. Um, and that's where the sun was, um, that, that the sun that illuminated the world came from his anus. His father turned out um, to be... a. Uh, um, an educator who had very um, strange ideas about being strict to children and had designed all sorts of ways to tie them up to um, their chairs in various ways in order to get them to be more um, um, uh, ductile to um, education. Um, and so Freud wrote his wrote a book called... Um, I don't actually know what its official title is, but you can get a book called Three Case Histories, which has the wonderful subtitle, The Wolfman, The Ratman, and The Psychotic Dr. Schraber. So how can you beat that for a subtitle? Three Case Histories by Sigmund Freud, The Wolfman, The Ratman, and The Psychotic Dr. Schraber. And, um, and Daniel P. Schraber, Daniel Paul Schraber is his name. And... Um, he was a lot more psychotic than the, than the Dr. Schraber in the movie. Um, so uh, what Schraber in the movie, what Kiefer Sutherland says is, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Um, her memory's been wiped. And um, the possibility of returning that memory to her is impossible. Um, so does that make her a different person or not? What do we think about his trying... You know, the movie ends with the implication that um, the love story will work. Um, Will it? He comes from the the, the standpoint that he sort of... He knows that he may not have loved her at one point, but he's in the the mindset that he does still love her. Uh Uh-huh even though he knows he didn't at one point. 
or he yeah or he knows that um, she wasn't anything to him that every that the way he fell in love with her never happened um, and yet he loves her so one question about and the movie really does want to raise this one question then about your commitments um, as to whether you love someone or not is a question of your past and the importance of your past to who you are. And if it's not your past, um, if it turns out that something isn't your past, does that change who you are or not? And um, the two of them, or maybe including um, Schraber, the three of them, are three different thought experiments in this issue um, because he keeps his memories. False though they are, he keeps them. And that's why um, Shell Beach matters so much and it matters so much for him to get there. He doesn't lose those memories. So our sense of Murdoch is that's who he is. Um, he's the figure who's had those memories throughout. Um, yeah. Oh, your hands on up. Okay. Um, so that's our sense of who he is. What about our sense of, yeah. I was just going to say that they also raised the point uh, that they wanted to see whether if they gave him the memory of a murderer, he would become a murderer. Right. Um, and he didn't. So that seems to be the thesis of the movie, is that it doesn't matter. Yeah. So part of the question was, um, and I think you just, I just want to say that you don't have to think that they actually handle the... Um, thought experiments perfectly in, in all their ways to find them interesting. Um, but what, they're, what um, the movie makers, Porias and the, and the script writers, are trying to do is raise the question, are you the sum of your past? Does your past make you what you are? So that if you give someone a particular past... Um, that will turn them into a particular person. For the aliens, that seems to be the case. That is, they are betting. They are they are betting on the idea. Um, they are somehow hoping. It seems to be the case that they're betting on the idea and hoping that, um, given a past, they will then become the figures with those past, although still with their powers, so that they can piggyback on human pasts, and that's what they're hoping for. Um, so, given their need to find some place to um, inject themselves the idea that um, that forming a mosaic being as the one I think it's Mr. Book does um, with John's past um, would be a way for them to survive the idea would be a way for them to survive because if all you are is your own past then you can survive if you're given a past that enables you to survive I think that, did, was that what people were getting from it? I think that's the basic, their basic hope and their basic um, plan. Yeah. Wasn't it the other way around then? They try to find what makes every human unique, regardless of what their past is. Well, there, there I think the movie was a little bit confused, but I think the idea was that um, if what made humans unique was their past, that is all humans, if it turned out that what made humans unique was that they all had individuated pasts, that they didn't have a hive mind, that they didn't share um, their experience, that they weren't a single mind um, in some kind of communication with itself, um, 
that they didn't all have a single subjectivity, because that question of subjectivity and the mobility of subjectivity comes up as well. Um, but if they found um, things that individuated, and if what individuated was a past, if that's what you needed to be individuated was a past, and if individuation would be what saved, would, would be the only way to save them, then if the past was the only thing that individuated, um, they could hope to be saved by um, getting themselves pasts. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Um, remember that scene when um, she goes to visit him when he's in the jail? Wait, um, let me just inject the... Yeah. yeah. Yes. When he's, when he's in jail, she goes to visit him, and then he says, like, oh, he never cheated on me, and unless it wasn't true, and then she says that she believes him, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, which is nicely symbolic. Um, yeah, it's what he says to her, this never really happened, and she then says, does it matter? And he says, no. And that's a really, obviously that's a really important moment when he says, no, it doesn't matter um, that we were never married, that this past is implanted. Um, so again, the th so the three thought experiments, at least among the humans, are... John Murdoch, who um, stays the same throughout. Kiefer Sutherland, who has no idea what he was before any of this started. Um, and um, um, his wife, who has a different past at the end of the movie from the past she has at the beginning of the movie. Um, and so the question is, given that he loves her because, for whatever reason, um, but at least in part as a result of the implanted memories by which he loves her, um, by which they have a past together, um, but she is no longer the same person because she doesn't have those memories, or she's no longer the person who has those memories. She's a person who now has different memories, different memories which are as legitimate as his memories of their past together. It's not that she has false memories, whereas he has true memories. Um, it's their memories for from before before um, the action started are equally true. Um, and then, of course, there's William Hurt, whose um, memories are non-existent. Um, who, in a way, is the pure um, stranger, the pure figure of the um, gangster uh, or detective as tragic hero, the figure who only lives in the city and therefore um, can only fall into the city, um, his life and his death being the same kind of relationship to the anonymous city. I mean, he's a really interesting figure for that reason as well, and the way that Warshow and Zimmel are talking about. Um, but I guess the, the issue of personal identity that's coming up there is um, the extent to which whatever she is, she really is that person, no matter what her memories are and no matter what um, um, her beliefs about who she is um, are or who he is. 
she is that person and he is he knows or at least is betting on the fact that he'll be that person when he now you know I, th- I think it's actually a really nice touch when he now makes his memory into the actuality of their present meeting that is here's the place they met um, in his memory and now here's the place where they are meeting so it's now becoming a real thing that will be a shared memory between them but he can count on its being real on its working Um, he can count on its working because he has a sense of her as a person rather than her as simply the continuity of her own memories and her own past or her presence in the continuity of his own memories and his own past. And um, I guess one question to ask is, is that convincing? Yeah, Jay. Nice. Distinction between like the memories and like who they are as a person, and the memories are like a separate entity from them, but the person who's interpreting the memories are like them as like a being. Uh huh. So in the end, um, like even though she has different memories, it's like she's like the same person, but she just she's just she just has different memories to interpret. So okay. it's like convincing that in the end they would like their love story. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, And I think that, um, well, in a way that fits in with what you were saying about reading a book 30 years later. Um, It's how you interpret your own memories that um, determine who you are as a person. Um, To what extent then would it have been okay, you know, if you've seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or something, to what extent would it be okay for him to have his own memories wiped? How much does he have to be, oh, I don't know, let me invent a phrase, a keeper of memories? Um, How much does a giver (laughs) have to give him um, memories that will um, uh, at least allow him to be the curator of that relationship? Because he... She doesn't know who he is, but does it matter that he knows who she is? Um, knows who she is as the person who will interpret whatever memories she has um, the way she will. Yeah. I suppose he needs enough memories and enough, a certain kind of memory that leads him to determine from experience that she's the kind of person that he can be compatible with. Mm-hmm. Right? So that you know, he would say, okay, she's this girl, she's nice, I know nice girls. I want to marry her. Mm-hmm. So do you, what, if, what if he were offered the blue pill and he could, now he's met her, and so what he does, I'm just asking basically a question about your own, would you find this satisfying or not? Um, that he's met her, he knows, because he's in a position to know, that um, he will love her, because that's who, because, to quote Montaigne, because it's him, because it's her. Um, and at that point, in order to even things out, he can take an amnesia pill, um, and they can start afresh. Would that be, would that be a, an alternative you would like or not like? Yeah. I feel like if, if it ended with them walking away together, and he had, and then he decides to take the amnesia pill, like, I think that it would almost be more satisfying because you know that 
she doesn't remember anything, that his love for her is like actually there because mm-hmm. he doesn't he's not taking it from past memories that they're ending up together because of his um I don't know, actual connection with her. Uh huh. He just like feels instinctively. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it could it could be a um, a complete men in black do over, um, and you would f- and then I think what would happen is we would feel confident that um, they'll get together and it will be fine. Um, does anyone? I actually feel like I wouldn't find that satisfying though. Um, yeah. There's something kind of like there's something destructive about that. Because, like, yeah. in the choice, like, I think that if you talk to, like, any, like, any like, couple who've been together for a long time, the idea that there are memories of each other, even in hardship, could be, like, erased, would be seen as, like, a very bad thing. Not from this kind of, like, oh, what does it mean about love perspective, but, but from a very, like, that's, like, something that he's going to cherish, like, all of the experiences they've had together. And to forget that would be to kind of like, to, on purpose, you know, not like out of some serendipitous event, would be like a destructive act of like their experiences. Nice. I, yeah, I think, uh, I think there's something to that. Yeah. Um, did you want to say something? Oh, like, I was just going to say like, it's maybe just like a weird solution, but like, I, I don't know, I think I'd feel happiest if there was at least the opportunity for him to write this memory and then he didn't take it because then at least you know that he had a choice to forget something that you can only have with like a pill or a magic button. Like you can't have a choice to forget. <coughs> yeah. Like, it's like that biblical quote about like remembering to forget the bad guy. Uh-huh. Uh, they have like from, from uh, one of the Old Testament stories. But like because of that, in order for there to be like a true choice about like him having an active will, like an active, I don't know if we can here, but like a rational will mm-hmm. to, to love. Yeah he had to have a choice to opt into it instead of just taking it as what it was an unchangeable present as a result mm-hmm. of the past time together. Yeah. So, like... Although, you know, that's the Nietzschean view, right? Yeah. To turn... Um, to, to, it's, it's what Nietzsche calls amor fati, love of fate, and to turn um, it was into thus I willed it. That is, um, you're given something, but you then, the, the act of, um, the supreme act of the will is to take the given and to make it the very thing that you will. Yeah, so like since, since that is, at least in this thought experiment, completely impossible because memory is something we have no choice over, mm-hmm. if we did have that like added fourth level of thought experiment. Okay, so if he, if he decides not to take the pill, then he's willing it. Yeah, yeah. If he decides yeah. not to take a will, you can say there was a will there. But yeah. If not, I don't think you can say like he willed to love her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's I like that. Um, it is the sort of thing that comes up in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, I think that one problem about just the pure wiping of the memory, and I think that this is um, part of oh, that clock slightly slow. Sorry. And here I am, such a good clock clock watcher. Um, is that I think we would feel slightly cheated if our own two-hour-long memory of the movie was then not something shared by um, at least the major character, at least, at least the lead. Um, that is, that if it ends happily with, you know, 
a completely brand new world, and all of this is now gone. Everything that we've seen is now gone. Um, there's a way in which in which it just feels like um, the characters we were invested in are not anymore. Um, our investment um, went with their memories, and um, I think one way of thinking about that in the movie is to say that, well, shouldn't he at least remember all the real things that happened from the moment that the movie started? That is, not the memory implants before the movie started, but the real things that happened once the movie starts. Because that's what we care about. Um, now, it's a little bit complicated by flashback, because that appears to us as something happening in the movie, even though we know its memory implant but it's also his experience of those memories is a present tense experience in the movie, even though the present tense experience is a recollection of past experiences. And I think the, the injection that Kiefer Sutherland gives him at the end when he intervenes in his memory and trains him and all that, um, that's a kind of, this is the first time you're ever remembering this, and um, you're seeing your whole life as a movie that I'm now giving you in order to train you. Um, the question, I guess, we, we really will do Plato, which will be really good for The Matrix on Thursday, but I guess the question to ask, um, the question to wonder about um, is why it, why it matters to us um, their own um, sense of what's mattered to them. Um, why can't we care about them without caring about um, whether they care about themselves in the same way, in some, on some level the same way? Okay, we'll pick it up on Thursday. The Matrix.